you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see those of you who are here with us in person. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online as we get ready to start a brand new series called Thankful, uh, looking specifically at the book of Ruth. And we're going to unpack, especially today, as we give a little bit of an introduction about the story, about the time frame in which it happens, but then take a glimpse of some of the things that Ruth experiences that we experience as well and how that can encourage us to be thankful no matter what season we are in. Now, before we jump into that topic in general, um, recently, uh, it was probably a couple days ago when I was on Facebook, um, and there's kind of those memories that pop up, and it says like, oh, 10 years ago, you said this, and you know, half the time you're like, what was I thinking, and why did I say that, and why did I think people would be interested about what specific food or what specific restaurant I was having at that specific time, but you know, we, we wanted to let people into our lives. Um, and what I came across a couple days ago was um, a, like a thankfulness challenge that I had taken several years ago where it was taking one thing each day of November and just sharing on social media. You don't have to do it this way, but just sharing something that we're thankful for. So it's, you know, thankful for my wife. Thank you for uh, my kids. Thanks for my home and my job and all these different things that over time, it was just taking that intentional moment in November to say, I'm thankful for this. Day one, thankful for that. Day two, thankful for that. And just getting into the habit of reminding ourselves what we can be thankful for. Now, I don't remember the specific things that were going on in that time when I did that, but I guarantee that the whole month of November wasn't like, like roses and raindrops and everything perfect, right? Like there were difficult times, and yet working on being thankful, intentionally taking the time to express gratitude has such a profound impact on our lives, no matter what type of season we're in. Because in a room this size, not including people joining us online, I'm sure there were people in this room or part of our service today who are experiencing times where gratitude comes easy. They look around and seeing the blessings around them and they think, Lord, I am so grateful. I don't deserve any of this, but Lord, you are so good. I know that in a room this size and people joining online that there are people who are in a season of hurt and loss. And gratitude comes hard. And thankfulness is difficult. We think, how do I offer up my prayers and requests with thanksgiving, Lord, when my prayers and requests are causing so much stress or anxiety? And yet we know that what God says is that when we offer those up to him, and when we offer up our prayers and petitions with thanksgiving, he can provide a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's, it's almost like there's a dance that has to be done with thankfulness as always part of our prayer life, even when we don't see it around us or reasons for it around us, I should say. And last week we talked about how we can look at a model of prayer of being A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. It's an acronym someone else came up with, which is great, called ACTS, and it's the ACTS method of prayer, and thanksgiving again is part of that. But in order to just, so we don't just think this is, you know, oh, this is just a mental exercise, or this is, you know, this prayer when we offer to God thanksgiving, and when we take time to remember what he's done, it allows us 
to have hope for what we're experiencing. When we look back on answered prayers, and we think, God, you were so good that you did this, this, and that, and remind me of that. Maybe you have a gratitude journal. Maybe you just look back on different things on social media, and you look back and say, God, you were so good then, and I don't know what's going on now, but your faithfulness and your enduring love in the past gives me comfort in the present and hope for the future. And we're, uh, I mentioned this book a couple times uh, recently, and there's a section, this is called uh, Winning the War at Your Mind um, by Craig Rochelle, and we've watched a couple of these sermons as our staff, and we're looking into just what it looks like, and I've mentioned, again, recently a couple sermons. But I wanted to quote this section when it talks about the importance of how our brain rewires itself all the time, and Craig Rochelle will say things like, your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Are your strongest thoughts, or my strongest thoughts, ones towards thankfulness and gratitude and, and hope in the midst of difficult times? Or are your strongest thoughts and my strongest thoughts ones that lead to anxiety and stress and frustration and discouragement? And he talks about this, that Dr. Karen Leaf, who I quoted a couple weeks ago, um, she, a uh, neuro, neuro, um, scientist, couldn't even say the word scientist, that's embarrassing, um, but she talks about this. She says, it has been found that 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight-week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. This type of prayer increases activity in brain areas associated with social interaction, compassion, and sensitivity to others. It also increases frontal lobe activity as focus and intentionality increase. In other words, when we are praying to God, when we are taking captive our thoughts and we are making them obedient to Christ, when we are taking time to slow down and to thank God, even when things are tough, or to pray focusing on whatever God is doing in our lives, instead of letting the train of runaway thoughts of negativity run ragged and just go off the tracks, we stop it. We make it captive. And friends, I, I'm not great at math, but I think there's probably about eight weeks left in our year here in 2023. What would it look like for you, for me, for us to intentionally spend at least 12 minutes every day in prayer to God, in thankfulness, even when we don't see what he's doing, but we can be thankful for what he's already done. We can be thankful for what he's already said because just because we don't see how he's moving now what we don't see right now, what we don't experience in the darkness doesn't change what he said in the light. And so the fact that he's still with us. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to start off in Ruth chapter 1 after a, a word of prayer. And our sermon this morning is called Thankful for Kindness. And this kindness can seem kind of general, can seem kind of vague, but we're going to drill down into what that word means, what it means biblically, and how that impacts our lives uh, no matter what season we are in. Because we are going to dive into Ruth, and it is not a happy story in chapter one. And yet, what does it look like for us to experience the kindness of God? What is it like for us to share the kindness of God with others? And what does it mean to know that the God of kindness and loyal love is with us no matter what we face? Because if we allow it, that will give us an opportunity to be thankful in any and every situation. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who is part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live online, watching, or listening later throughout the week. 
And Lord, I don't know what every person is coming into this uh, morning with, Lord. Whether it's thankfulness is easy, whether thankfulness is hard, whether we're experiencing your kindness or whether we feel an emptiness from your kindness, Lord, whatever it is, I pray that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way as we dive into your word, that I would decrease and that you would increase. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word that is living and active. And we thank you for this opportunity to dive into your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to have uh, scripture references on the screen. I'm going to read larger chunks. We're going to pull out a couple of verses here and there, but the whole passage will not be on the screen, so I encourage you to follow along, whether it's a paper Bible that you brought, maybe it's the Bible that's in the seats in front of you, maybe you brought your phone in order to, uh, to read the Bible that way. Um, join us online. You can look at the Bible tab as well at the top of the screen, Ruth chapter 1. And here are a couple points that we're going to hit on looking at this story of Ruth and Naomi, her mother-in-law. So the first point that would help us to know is that Ruth and Naomi, or Naomi and Ruth, lived in a dark time just like we do. Naomi and Ruth lived in a dark time just like we do, just like you and I do now. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 say this. Again, just be listening and follow along in your Bible. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, we could just say that's just setting the scene, but... What helps us to understand is the context of when, just those first few words here, when you go to verse one, when it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Those two things, that one verse gives us two contexts in order to help us understand how difficult and dark things were in the, for the people of Israel during this time. In the days when the judges ruled, there's a couple verses, the very last verse of the book of Judges, which is right before the book of Ruth. So if you're looking at your Bible, Ruth 1, you go back one page, you're going to see Judges chapter 21. Here's what Judges chapter 21 says about, in verse 25, about those days of the judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And that's in the NIV. And I love, I think that helps us to get an idea. But I think the ESV gives us another really helpful dynamic as well. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the Hebrew of this is like the idea of in, their, in everyone's own estimation, people did what they saw fit or what they saw was right in their own eyes. And if there's a, a verse that paints the picture of a moral relativistic culture, a, a culture where moral, morality is, is my truth versus your truth or the idea that there's no such thing as objective truth, And so it's just, well, you just do you, and you do you, and you do you, and that's it. It's the idea that people are doing what is right in their own eyes. So someone might do something that they think is not wrong at all without understanding of consequence to how it affects other people. Or they think, well, this doesn't actually hurt anybody, so I can do what's right in my own eyes, whether it's in the privacy of my own home or, or, or whatever it is, without recognizing That if everybody does what's right in their own eyes, it leaves a culture 
that ends up being blind. It leaves us with a culture where, again, there, no one could say, well, there's objective truth. Because the response is, well, that's, that's your truth. That's not my truth. And so this moral relativism, the idea that morality and truth and right and wrong is relative to what you think is paramount to the difficulty and darkness of our time. And it was paramount to the difficulty and the darkness in the days of the judges. And so we live in a similar time. Here's the, the cycle of sin that we see in Judges that, um, that would happen all throughout the book. And this is a quick summary. We'll, we'll go into it. We can hit on it a couple times throughout this series because it gives us the context of what we need to understand. But the cycle of sin in Judges is first that there's a rebellion against God. That the people forget their covenant faithfulness. They forget to obey the Lord's commands. And the Lord, in keeping true to his word, will put forth various curses for this. And, and it might seem, oh, well, that's really harsh. But in Deuteronomy 28, there's a time where there's this huge ceremony when Moses is reading out or, or expressing what the Lord says the blessings are for obeying God. And that's a certain amount. And then there's like four times as much or three times as much curses for if you disobey God. And one of them would be a famine in the land. And so there's a rebellion against God. And then a foreign nation would come in and there's ruin at the hands of a foreign nation. In fact, as we learn about Moab, there is a, a story that um, in Judges chapter 3, this is one of those stories where uh, we don't always study, and it just you kind of read it kind of out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that story existed in the Bible. And it's a story of King Eglon, and the Moabites had come over, and they were overtaking, they were the foreign nation that was coming over and taking over Israel. And it talks about the story of Ehud, who was a left-handed Benjamite. So uh, left-handed was something where... Um, it was just very rare, right? And then Benjamin was one of the lower of the clans or the tribes of Judah. And I, this is not me being uh, rude or anything. This is what the, the Bible says, that King Eglon had so much extra weight that when Ehud came in, he stabbed him with his left hand, not with his right hand, because they would pay attention to make sure you didn't have a, a dagger on your left thigh to be able to use. So he was able to hide it. He goes into the king, he stabs him, and it talks about how the rolls of fat just go over the hilt. I'm not, I'm not making it up. This is what it says. And then it talks about how they were, uh, that it took a long time for the guards to come in because they just thought that he was using the restroom. And so it's one of those where this is a lot, there's a lot to it. But it points us to the fact that Moabites and Israelites were not friends. They did not have a good relationship that the Moabite country or, or the people group came out of Lot, um, coming out of Genesis and how there was incest there. And so it's just one of those where it's like, it's not a great country and it followed after different gods with child sacrifices from Kamash. So they were not friends. They, had, they shared a similar lineage, similar lineage, excuse me, but they were not friends. And that's one example from Judges 3 with Ehud, but there are other examples in the book of Judges about a foreign nation who comes in and God uses other people far from God in order to discipline and to call his people back to, through repentance. So then there's a request for help. It's a repentance. They cry out to God and say, we've been oppressed. We want to turn back to your ways. And then they are rescued by God through a judge. That God sends a judge, and it's not judge that we think of, right? It's a tribal chieftain, it's a ruler, it's someone who doesn't have the king. He's not a king who oversees the whole nation, but he is someone that God raised up in order to be able to fight back against the foreign nation 
And there were men and women who were judges at different times. And then, sadly, the cycle repeats. Once there's peace from being rescued, after a time, the, the judge would die, and then there'd be no, more rebellion against God, ruin at the hands of a foreign nation, request for help, and then a re, a rescued by God through a judge, repeating. Because no matter what, no matter how many times they were rescued, the people would always still do what was right in their own eyes. They did not return to following the Lord's commands and embodying the covenant that he called them to live. And so here's what the NET Bible, it's a, it's a translation that's helpful as well, and it has some different commentary, which is great. It says this, many interpreters reading this statement in the light of the book of Judges, which describes a morally corrupt period, assume the narrator is painting a dark backdrop against which Ruth's exemplary character and actions will shine even more brightly. Friends, the way that we shine is when it's a dark world in a dark time. That for those of us who love Jesus and we have that relationship with him, we're called to be lights of the world. We're called to shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. We're called to be a, a light that cannot be hidden and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. That it's in the darkness that God uses his people as witnesses to his light and his love. And so we see that we live in a dark time just as the judges did, just like Ruth did. And this next quotation here talks about this. The judges period that provided the setting was notorious for its apostasy, so falling away from the Lord, and covenantal ignorance and offense, breaking the covenant, the vow that they had with God that was reaffirmed many times, including Deuteronomy 28. How did the faith of Israel survive? The author suggests that it survived in the families of common folk, excuse me, such as Elimelech and Naomi. The overall picture was grim, but there were faithful individuals. Friends, when I think about how Ruth and Naomi lived in a dark world just like we do, and the faith was continued on by faithful individuals. It was the, the, the culture or the country or the world might be going one direction, but people who are faithful to Jesus, faithful of following God, still shine like stars. We're still called to live in such a way that we're not called to just be one step ahead of the world. We're called to be one step in lockstep with God, to keep in step with the Spirit and in so doing be able to experience and to have the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Even in the darkness of the judges, God had faithful families he called to be powerful examples even in dark times like ours, God is calling faithful men and women and families to be godly examples. The second thing that we'll start to see in verse 3 and 5, and this one does not need as much um, exposition or explanation because it, we feel it in our bones rather than needing to learn it with our minds. It's that Naomi and Ruth experience tragedy and loss just like we do. Verses, one, or verses 3 through 5 say this. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, this is a devastating loss. In the culture, when they, are, they rely on... Um, the, the, the bloodline to continue on. 
that yes, Naomi and Elimelech had their two sons, but then the provider died. Elimelech, his name is two words, which is like Eli or Elohim, so it's God, and then Melech is the word king, so his name means God is my king. And then he goes to another nation and he dies, and then the two sons who are meant to continue the family line, and then also to continue um, providing for and protecting Naomi. Because she didn't have someone working for her. She didn't have anyone to raise up. She didn't have anyone providing or protecting her. So the fact that her, her husband died, okay, that's obviously very difficult. But then to have both her sons die and to have her two daughter-in-laws and there were no kids, no family line, all of a sudden she's in a foreign land with two foreign daughters-in-law without any protection, without any provision. This is a tragedy that while the national tragedy in Israel, in Israel was that the judges were ruling and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, the personal tragedy and loss hits home. She has nowhere else to go, no one to whom to turn. There was no one to protect. There was no one to provide. And so she experiences this loss that's more than just having to navigate the loss of loved ones. It's the loss of loved ones and then the loss of protection, provision, and hope for a new life. Now, in that culture, there was, um, well, well, we'll hit on the, the marriage dynamic in a little bit. So, Naomi and Ruth lived in a dark world just like we do. Naomi and Ruth experienced tragedy and loss just like we do. Naomi and Ruth needed kindness from God and from others, just like we do. Naomi and Ruth needed kindness from God and others, just like we do. This is where we're going to land quite a bit in regards to our context um, of the word kindness today, because if we learn nothing else and we get a better grasp of what this word means, my hope is that that will encourage us in the midst of whatever we are facing, and that we could be thankful for God's kindness no matter what. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. So remember how in that cycle of the judges, there's a time when God would rescue the people and then covenant blessings would come back until it was rebelled. Where she's listening in Moab, she hears, oh, there's food back in Israel again. We had been gone for 10 years. It's time for us to go back to the home of where Naomi originally came from. Verse 7. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So, We'll stop here for now. Let's look at this, the word for kindness a little bit more here. So we have this idea where Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are on the road. And then at some point down the road, it's far enough that Naomi either just decides to send them back or knows that she has to send them back, but wanted the companionship for as long as she could before she put Ruth and Orpah in a place where they were going to face a really difficult time in Israel. Because part of the covenant law was that the people, the Israelites, were not supposed to intermarry. They weren't supposed to go to Moab, for example, and marry with them there. 
And so Naomi's coming back, and, and she is, they escaped the, um, the, the Israelites' area in order to be able to go to Moab to get food. And then they, they're coming back, and she'd be coming back with two daughters-in-law that people who are following God's word would be looking and saying, why did you allow your sons to get married? Like, just all these different things. But she also realizes that there's no hope for her. And she also realizes whether she knew it way back in Moab and waited to tell them or whether she just realized it on the road back to Israel, that there's no hope for Ruth and Orpah either. So she wishes and she says a blessing verbiage of, may the Lord show you kindness. And this word kindness in the Hebrew is this word hased. Can you guys say hased? Hased. Awesome. Um, so it's H-E-S-E-D, even though that's not how you spell it because it's Hebrew and there's a lot of different vowels and things. But the idea is it's this, it's this word kindness. We see it translated as kindness here, but it's so much more than that. So let's give an example. So you know how there are certain words in our English language that have multiple meanings based on the context. And so in fact, uh, there's a, a quiz and maybe, you, I don't know, I had no idea about this. I typed in, what is the English word with the most different meanings? And so the English word with the most different meanings is three letters long, and it has 645 meanings um, in regards to like the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's different meanings, different ways that it's used, and they shared about how just the first definition of it um, took someone who, you know, study, who works for Oxford English Dictionary, took them nine months just to compile the different ways that it can be used just with that one specific word. It's a word that you and I use probably every single day or not very, very, very frequently. And so what I like to do is I'm going to read an example that uh, I believe is the Reader's Digest put together in order to see if you guys can catch what word it is and how many different ways it's used just in this one paragraph, okay? Context is everything, they say. Think about it. When you run a fever, for example, those three letters have a very different meaning than when you run a bath to treat it or when your bathwater subsequently runs over and drenches your cotton bath runner, forcing you to run out to the store to buy a new one. There you run up a bill of $85 because besides a rug and some cold medicine, you also need some thread to fix the run in your stockings and some tissues for your runny nose and a carton of milk because you've run through your supply at home. And all this makes dread run through your soul because your value club membership runs out at the end of the month and you've already run over your budget on last week's grocery run when you ran over a nail in the parking lot and now your car won't even run properly because whatever idiot runs at Walmart apparently lets his custodial staff run amok and you know you're letting your inner monologue run on and on but gosh, you'd do things differently if you ran the world and breathe, maybe you should run for office. And so... That one word in that one run and it's various, you know, just within that paragraph has that many meanings. And so if you were to try to say, if someone years from now was looking at our context with our verbiage and our language and we're saying, hey, what does the word run mean? Well, they would have a lot of explaining to you to give a lot of caveats and difficult, or difficult, excuse me, different and various meanings. And so this is kind of how it is with said because said is something that has so many more meanings than what we see as the word kindness. I saw one commentator just say something like, trying to fit all the thoughts and meanings of the word has said in one word is trying to catch the water from a waterfall into a single cup. And so here's a definition. Here gives us some ideas of what has said means. And so here we go here. It says this, 
Hesed is a strong relational term that wraps up in itself an entire cluster of concepts, all the positive attributes of God. Love, mercy, grace, kindness for our purposes today, goodness, benevolence, loyalty, and covenant faithfulness. In short, that quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of another without respect to the advantage it might bring to the one who expresses it. In other words, as Paul Miller succinctly puts it, Hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. It's this kindness, faithfulness, love. Uh, a translation in the Hebrew, the way that it often does, will just say loyal love. Steadfast love is one that you've probably seen several times in your Bible when it talks about how God is abounding in love. And the problem in English is that we use the same word love for when I say, I love pizza, that we say when I say, I love my wife. Those are very different types of love. And yet, what Hasid is saying that this is all the positive attributes of God in one single word that it shows faithfulness, love, kindness, loving kindness. We sang about that earlier in, in our song earlier in the worship service. It's all these goodness, all these things. So when Ruth is, or Naomi is saying, may God show you Hasid, she's not just saying, may, may there be someone who gives you an extra piece of bread on the way home. May there be someone who, you know, doesn't run you over while they're going. Like, it's not just small acts of kindness, though those are important in our lives. Because when we recognize that we are a followers of a God of kindness, we want to live out that kindness. But the idea is acknowledging that this is so much more. He's saying, she's saying, you have been faithful to your covenant to my dead sons who passed away. And you've said that you would come with me. May God show you the kind of kindness that you have shown by fulfilling your vow and by walking and risking everything to come away from your land of Moab to Israel. May you receive this hesed. May you receive this loving kindness, faithfulness because you've shown it to me. But this is the moment where she says, but there's no hope for me. And there's no hope for you if you come with me. So let's pick up the story again in verse 10. Verse 10 continues on. Well, right before that, it says, the end of verse 9 says, Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. Verse 11. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could, not, who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So let's take a couple moments to unpack this. This is following the idea of the, uh, what's called a Leverite marriage. A Leverite marriage was a way that in the Old Testament that was a way to protect the family lineage of people who maybe did not have sons. And so what happened, and we see this talked about in Matthew, I believe it's 23, when um, someone asks Jesus about, well, suppose a man has, a, has um, a wife and she doesn't give birth and then she marries his brother and, it go, and they die and then it keeps going on for seven times. Who will she be married to? in the kingdom of heaven. And he, Jesus is like, you're not going to be married to anybody. It's, that's not the point. But it's referencing what's called a Leverite marriage because what would happen is, is that there would be someone who's the closest uh, family member. In this case, it would be a brother that would then step in 
and say, I'm going to have a child with this woman, and we'll get married, we'll have a child, and that child will not be part of my name. That child would be part of my older brother's name. So that way, my older, the older brother would continue on, in, his line would continue on throughout time. It was a way to protect against names being and family lines dying off. And so what Naomi's saying here is that you've been faithful, you've had said towards me because you said you would still come with me to the new land, but I can't have any more kids. And even if I had sons, you know, nine months from now, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you sacrifice those years in order to wait for my sons to then grow up and then they would be much younger than you and you would hopefully start like... She's saying there's no, there's no hope for you at the end of the story. So she's freeing them from the covenantal duty to stay with her. She's saying, listen, there, there's an exit route. There's no hope for me. And if you come with me, there's no hope for you. That's why she talks about how bitter it is for her. And so let's continue on here. Verse 14 says, At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And then there's this beautiful declaration of covenant faithfulness, of hesed. Well, I'm actually going to put it on the screen here, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So we see this whole dynamic of, Orpah, it makes sense for her to go back. I mean, this is not saying Orpah's a bad person. But she too realizes there's no hope for me if I keep walking down this path. And she goes back to Moab. And again, we never hear from her again. But the idea is that she'd be able to start a family. And we don't learn more about her family line. But as we'll see throughout this book, we're going to learn a lot more about Ruth's family line. But here's where um, a commentator emphasizes the sacrifice that Ruth was making. Says, she says this, unlike Abraham, Ruth's decision is unbolstered by God's promises of great blessing along the way or any visible props from her circumstances that might reinforce the choice. See, this is different than when Abraham was sent out by God to leave the land of Ur to a land he did not know and he received the promise. We don't see Ruth hearing the voice of God. In fact, the voice of God in the book of Ruth is actually pretty silent. He doesn't talk very much, but you see him working throughout the book in many ways, which we'll see over time. But what it says here is, you know, Abraham knew, okay, he had the promise. He had the covenant. He knew that as he went forward, that God would answer. Ruth didn't have those assurances. If anything, Ruth's future is grimmer than Naomi's. For now, Ruth will be the foreigner. And because she is young, she faces a longer stretch of adversity ahead than her aging mother-in-law. But with both eyes open to the consequences of her actions, Ruth slams and bolts the door on her own future. She clings tenaciously to the despairing Naomi, then cries out for the, to the heavens, for the heavens, excuse me, to fall on her if she fails to keep her word. She is embodying this idea of Hesed that you and I, we need to 
be people who can give chesed, love without limits, one-way love that does not have an exit strategy. And we need to be able to give that. And what's often harder, friends, is we need to be able to receive that love back. We need to allow ourselves to love, and then we need to allow ourselves to be loved and to be able to experience that because we are all created in the image of the God who is the God of Hesed, the God of loving kindness, of faithfulness, of goodness, of love, of all these different words that it's trying to catch the waterfall of God's loving goodness from Niagara Falls into a cup. So the last point that we have this morning as we close is that Naomi and Ruth served the God of Hesed just like we do. They lived in a dark world, in a dark time, just like we do. They experienced tragedy and loss, just like we do. They need to receive and to give kindness, like we do. And they serve the God of Hesed, just like we do. Let's close the chapter, the last few verses here, starting in verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The word Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. The word Mara means bitter. I went away full, she says, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem at the barley, as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's go to the next slide real quick. I want to highlight verse 22. But before we go here, notice how in these verses from verse 19, 20, 21, and 22, in those four verses, we see Bethlehem mentioned three times. And I know like repetition is helpful, but it's like she went to Bethlehem. And then there she was in Bethlehem. And then it is in Bethlehem. Why is the author making it so apparent that Bethlehem is where she, and, uh, where she Naomi, and Ruth ended up being? Well, Bethlehem is, again, kind of like Elimelech is Eli, God. Melech is king. God is my king. Bethlehem is actually two separate words as well. Beth or Bet is the word for house, and Lechem is the idea of bread. So there's irony laced throughout this because it's saying that even in the house of bread, there was no bread. That's why they had to leave and go into the Moabites' land in order to survive the famine. But now they're coming back to the house of bread because they had heard that God was starting to feed the people again. And I love this, this picture here because it's as the barley harvest was beginning. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 21 are hard. There's loss, there's tragedy, there's grief, there's separations, there's transitions, there's pain. And then this verse 22, it's mentioning Bethlehem for the third time in four verses, but then it's also giving just a glimmer of hope. It's saying there's been no, there's been famine for over 10 years, but Ruth and Naomi arrive in the house of bread around the time the barley harvest was starting. About the time that bread, that provision, that protection was coming back upon God's people. I have a book called Unveiling Mercy, which is 
300, it's a devotional, daily devotional that looks through the Hebrew. Um, it's written by someone named Chad Bird. Here's what he says about this idea of Bethlehem. It says, much like the famine in Abraham and Sarah's day, again, there's a connection there, led to their journey to Egypt. So this one led to Naomi and her family's trek to Moab. Behind the scenes of both exiles was the hand of the Redeemer, orchestrating events that would lead after several generations, not right away, to acts of salvation. First, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, and second, the birth of Israel's King David in Bethlehem. See, it's painting this picture that no matter how bad things were, no matter how dark things were, the reason we serve a God of said, the reason he is that is that no matter how far we've gone, when we return to him, no matter how dark our lives are, there can always be that flicker of hope. There's always that hope. It's, I think about um, you know, when Tom Baudet tells us that he'll leave the light on for us with Motel 6 commercials. And you just think, okay, how many times did I go to Motel 6? Not very often, but I knew, according to Tom... <laughs> There'd be a light left for me if I arrived. But it's this idea of no matter how far we've gone, away from God, he leaves a light on for us. He leaves hope. Even if it's flickering, even if it's damaged, even if it's almost snuffed out, there's always hope. Why? Because his love for us is the one-way love that is unconditional of how we respond. It's the kind of love that still holds on to his people even when they've fallen short. It's the kind of love that still responds to the request for help no matter how many times in the book of Judges there's the cycle of request for help and then they still rebel and repeat it over and over again. It's the kind of love that shows us that while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that he sent Jesus to die for us. It's the kind of love that reminds us that when it comes to our relationship with God, he is not looking for an exit strategy. He loves us with the kind of chesed that is far beyond what we can even imagine. He continues on when he says this, a situation of hopeless discord was in the hands of the divine musician a perfect opportunity to pen a ballad of liberation and joy. In perfect tune with this divine music was the birth of the Messiah in Beth Lachem. The, the bread of God, the bread of life, celebrates his nativity in the house of bread. Let's go to the next slide. Into this cosmos of darkness and hopelessness. Remember, this was the age of the judges. The whisper of an ancient song of liberation and joy was in the wind once more. Hope was still around. If you're, if you're a fan of Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is on the move. And there's still hope. There's still a light that God has left for us. Exodus 34, when it talks about who God is, says, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love in your translations, but for the sake of our conversation today, that word is chesed. He's abounding in chesed and faithfulness, maintaining chesed to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It's pointing to how deep the love the Father has for us that we may be called children of God, and that is what we are. He's lavished it. It's, it's asking for a cup of water, and he overflows with the waterfall of how much he loves us. And to close, the big picture of Ruth 
reminds us that she experienced things just like we do. And so if she serves the God of chesed just like we do, then we can remember this, that God's grand story of redemption for all creation can be found in seemingly mundane events. It happens in tragedy. It happens in integrity in the face of opposition. It happens through acts of generosity. The book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in our lives. So if you're in a season of tragedy, how might God be working in the midst of that darkness and that difficulty? How might he be reminding you that he's left a light on for you when all you see is darkness? If you're facing opposition, do you, do I, do we face it with integrity? I've been reading Psalm 119 for my devotional and it's, it takes like four or five days to read. It's a lot of verses. But so many times it talks about The wicked set up traps for me, but I cling to your word. The idea that I'm trying to follow God, this is what the psalmist is saying, we try to follow no matter what opposition we face. Do we fall back to the way of the world in Moab and try to do things our own way, or do we face it with integrity? If you have the ability to be generous with time or gifts or talents or money, If you're in a season where the harvest has already come, it's bountiful, are you generous? Do you live that out? Because God works in times of tragedy and integrity and opposition, generosity and everywhere in between. So how is it that God might be at work in your life? So if I could encourage slash challenge us throughout the month of November, throughout the last eight weeks of the year, what would it look like if we take at least 12 minutes a day. 12 minutes a day, maybe we adore God with acts, with the, starting the acts method, we adore him for who he is, we confess, we've fallen short, then we land on this idea of thanksgiving, that we could be thankful. And if you look around and there is nothing around you that you could be thankful for because things are difficult, you're in that darkness, then we can be thankful for God's kindness, for his chesed, for the fact that he loves us so much he doesn't have an exit strategy. And in fact, his strategy for loving us was sending Jesus to die for us that we may have eternal life through him. And then we close that time in prayer with supplication. What would it look like? How would our brains and our lives and our hearts be changed if we were to focus on prayer and thanksgiving for at least 12 minutes a day for the rest of this year? You know, we talk about and you kind of hear the the the... What's the word? Like sarcastic idea of like, oh yeah, new year, new you. But if neuroplasticity is accurate, then there can be some newness in how we view our world and view our lives. If we take this seriously over the next eight weeks, that 2024 could be a new year and literally your brain would be able to be rewired and reshaped. So it's not a new you altogether, but there's new aspects of you that you're able to face difficulties better than you normally could, or with more hope in God's faithfulness and his love than normal. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service today, whether they're live in person, live in line, watching or listening later. And Lord, I I thank you for the fact that, um, Lord, you love us so much that you don't have an exit strategy. You love us to the point of sending Jesus to lay down his life so that we may have eternal life through him. We thank you that he says he is the bread of life and that we could find our sustenance and and our provision 
for what we need most through Jesus Christ alone. So Father, I pray that as we close this time of the sermon and we transition into the time of communion, Lord, would you meet us here? Would you help us no matter what season we're in, no matter how dark things are, may we remember your loyal love, your chesed for each and every one of us. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember, you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.